welcome to episode 49 of Oscar Podcast. I'm here with Craig Kennedy from livingincinema.com, Ryan Adams, and me, Sasha Stone from awardsdaily.com, with special guest Michael Gray. And this year we're talking about 1996. All right, well, let's launch into uh, 1996 when The English Patient won, easily won. It was one of those other, you know, unequivocal years. It had, you know, uh, no really strong competition, although Fargo Fargo would probably... Fargo and Jerry Maguire um, would have taken away some of its, some of its uh, power as a Best Picture contender, certainly Fargo. Uh, um, but... Nothing was going to stop the English patient. It was critically acclaimed. It made a whole shitload of money, and it had one hell of an Oscar story behind it. Um, but it was up against Fargo, Jerry Maguire, Secrets and Lies, and Shine, and it is the first um, Best Picture winner for Harvey Weinstein, right? Because uh, he and his brother were running Miramax at the time, and they actually mm-hmm. rescued the English patient from Fox when Fox dropped it because they didn't want it to star uh, Kristen Scott Thomas. They wanted it to star Demi Moore. <laughs> I know. Isn't that a bit absurd to think about that, how, how, how ridiculous the movie would have been? with the, Not that I have anything against Demi Moore, but I just can't imagine her in this movie. She would be so, seems to me, so miscast compared yeah. to the other people in the movie that she would be the she wouldn't fit in i don't think I well know. if Demi Moore had been in the film the film probably wouldn't have won best picture there's no way mm-hmm. but you know i did read the book and my one takeaway from it was i didn't think Kristen scott thomas was right for the part in the the way she's written it doesn't matter because she's still great in the movie and i'm glad they stuck to her the way they so did you have read the book you've read the english patient yeah patient. I, oh, okay. I want to because you know i've heard some of the readers say for one thing it's so different from the movie right because Structurally, the book is is very impressionistic. It skips around a lot. It's not it's not a straightforward narrative. And they had so Mangala had to whip it into shape in order to draw these two parallel stories. And that and that's not the way the book is 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 set up, though, right? The book is incredible. Just read it; mm-hmm. you'll see. It's yeah. it's really mm-hmm. exceptional, much better than the movie. Although, I can't really talk about the movie in a negative light ever since Anthony Mangala died. I used to hate The English Patient. But now I feel reverence for it, for that. Well, yeah, you know, that is so true. I feel the same way. And you know what, too? The English Patient has a fantastic um, Blu-ray DVD release, and Miguel has two different director's commentaries on there. He has a director commentary that he does with the with the screen, with, no, not with the screenwriter, because he was a screenwriter, with one of the actors, and then he has a, another director's commentary he does with another person, Saul Zantz, I think, the producer. And so you get to hear him twice, and he's so erudite. You know, he's so smart. It's just a treasure to have those commentaries and to have it's like it's like having an Anthony Mangala seminar or something or a film class with him right. to listen to what he did to, to to went through to make this movie. And he so put up it, Anthony Mangala or Saul Saul Zanz actually put up um, six million dollars of his own money to um, have make the English Patient because nobody wanted to make it and, and the cast sat there in in um, Italy waiting. Um, <clears throat> Unpaid, not getting any unpaid, salary, just waiting for the, him to get the, mo- the money together for financing, yeah. right? And in walks Harvey Weinstein and Miramax, who helped save them. And um, uh, yeah, it, it, I mean, and it did become that's that's an Oscar story. That's the kind of thing that people look at that and they say, um, that is a, a movie project that I admire and that I would like to reward. However, the movie itself was really popular and people were crying and the Academy loved it. I mean, look at it. It's catnip for the Academy, right? It's Nazis. It's romance. It's an epic sweep. It's got a great score, you know. He's a disfigured guy. He's disabled and he's and he can only act with his eyes and all that. 
kind of stuff that they love. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you know, Saul was really well respected because he'd already um, given the Academy two different Best Picture winners. He he produced One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and he produced Amadeus, and so he had a really good reputation. And to see him mistreated like that, as he was by 20th Century Fox, um, that must have made him you know really a sympathetic character in the underdog. In fact, he won in 1967. Not only did he win the Oscar for Best Picture, he picked up an honorary Oscar that year too. Even before the nominations came out, the Academy was going to give him an honorary Oscar, even though he had already won a handful, you know, for two other movies in the past. For 1997, they were going to give him an honorary Oscar too. I think it might have been, it might have been the Thalberg Award. I'm not. Sure. It was the Thalberg Award. Yeah. It was the, okay. It was the same year he won for the English Patient. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. It wasn't. So it wasn't an Oscar, but it was a Thalberg. Yeah. So yeah. it's a different, different, different trophy. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the English Patient is. You know, um, uh, an incredible love story uh, between um, Ray Fiennes and Kristen Scott Thomas. You know, in the book, the the roles are kind of reversed as they are in the movie. In the book, she's childlike. She's very young, and she's got, you know, a mop of... of, She's more like Juliette Binoche. She's got a mop of tumbly blonde curly hair and and knobby knees you know she's she's like got these charming knobby knees that he loves and in the movie it's all about her neckline but in the book it's her knees <laughs> because she looks like a little girl you know in a wow. lot of ways to him and and he's older and that's the dynamic in the book is older man vivacious vibrant young woman in the movie for some reason to me Kristen scott thomas comes off as more Mature and and he seems more little boyish, like that sort of reverse. She's even sort of looks bigger than he does. Mm-hmm. He's really withdrawn and not very socially adept, and she's very sophisticated and worldly right. in the movie. And in yeah. the book, she's not so. She's just mm. she's a bright light. She's this vibrant, you know, thing. But um, so that was took me aback because that dynamic in the book made it like he could never ever live without this the love of this woman because. It was so rare. And it works in the movie. You know, it mm-hmm. does. It's just a different dynamic. Well, that's the amazing thing Miguel does. He, 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 he falls in love with books, but, and, but he's not afraid to change the books radically. You know, the entire last 45 minutes of uh, uh, The Talented Mr. Ripley is not in the book at all. And characters that are in the movie, like uh, Cate Blanchett's characters, doesn't appear in the book at all. And so he totally changed the end of a talented Mr. Ripley, and the, and it's a different animal altogether than the novel. But it's just as good in its own way, and in some ways, it's even better. Yeah, it's an amazing I'm glad thing he does. That film up because I like that way better than English Patient. Which one? Mm. Talented Mr. Ripley. Oh yeah, it's, that's it's best. kind of an un- underappreciated, I think, in terms of movies in general. You don't hear people talking about it a lot, but it's just it's such a great movie. It's one of my personal favorites, too. Yeah, it's not underappreciated by the four of us. I right. can, that's, well, that's, that's for awesome. sure. Yeah. <laughs> and like you say, it diverges from the book, but it's, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter. I mean, every mm-hmm. every time that story's been told, and it's been told four or five times in cinema, mm-hmm. it's always they, they always go off on their own different way. But this one, actually, in its own way, also seems to remain as more true to the book than a lot of the others did. Absolutely, because for one thing, in the, in the book, it is never made clear at all, although there's obviously the erotic thing going on, and there's a little bit of homoeroticism, it's never made specific at all that Ripley is gay. And in the following Ripley books, because there are like five different Ripley books that Patricia Highsmith wrote, he's not gay, you know? Right. And so that was just for that one book that he sort of had that sort of uh, uh, bromance going on. And uh, That's But anyway, funny. in the movie, he definitely, there's no doubt about it, the fact that he's gay. 
Well, my problem with the English patient is that I love the, all the. I've seen it so many times, I, but I, and I love the romance, and I love when Juliette Binoche is ho- hoisted up on the pulley to see the uh, the, the mural and, and her relationship with him, and and I love watching the passion between Ray Fiennes and Kristen Scott Thomas. It's just it's very hot, but I don't like the whole he leaves her in the cave thing. It just to me it's it's ill conceived. It's like. You know, if it was me, I would stay with her at least 24 hours to make sure she was secure and had food and was warm. And I would sleep there with her, you know, comfort her. I wouldn't Mm -hmm. just abandon her right after she just got in that crash. And then, you know, of course, he goes and he gets captured and he can't get back. And by the time he gets back, she's dead and he carries her out. And then he gets burned in a plane and he becomes the English patient. But that was, for me, once that happened in the movie, I couldn't, it never won me back after that. There are a couple of things in the movie, and I could, I'll tell you in a minute the, the part that won me over, but the, the things that almost lost me in the movie, it's, it has to do with the staging. I think that Mengele had only done kind of smaller-scale movies before, and here he was handed this, this, this enormous, vast, sprawling epic, and I think it got away from him at times. There are things that bothered me about the staging. For instance, in the, in the castle, they're always walking to the other room so they can't be overheard, but you can hear through the walls because the walls are all falling down. <laughs> and they all know that. They all know they can hear each other, but they keep saying, Things that they that they want to keep a secret from each other that, that they know they should know better that the other person can hear right it happens time and time again in the movie it's just funny that they never thought that that was going to look strange on screen what did, that you, was just a, what did you think of it craig i avoided it for years and years and years and years because i knew that it wasn't my cup of tea and i was probably right that i avoided it because i finally watched it and uh it just really is it doesn't speak to me on any of the levels that i like a great movie to speak to me on it it um it it sort of conveys a fraudulent idea of love that we all learn in storybooks when we're little kids that's a total lie and (laughs) it just (laughs) and and i don't buy into that and i never bought into their great romantic passion you know that's supposed to echo throughout history. I was actually more interested in Juliet Binoche and Naveen Andrews. I wanted to hear their story. They were much hotter to me than uh, Kristen Scott Thomas. She's this is a spoiler, I suppose, but she's she's not a person that I would fly a plane into the ground for. That's for sure. Is he next? You're going to drag him into your little room. Where is it? Is this it? I've watched you, I've watched you at garden parties, on verandas, at the races. How can you stand there? How can you ever smile as if your life had capsized? You know why? Dance with me. No. Dance with me. I want to touch you. I want the things which are mine, which belong to me. Do you think you're the only one who feels anything? Is that what you think? <laughs> yeah, I know, and it, it's but, a problem. You know, I, yeah. I, I, at the same time, it looked great. The performances were all great. It's just, I, I don't want to be overly critical of it because it's just not a movie that's for me. And so it kind of lives up to its its billing. But I, I think of it probably really doesn't matter. I, I hadn't that. seen it. 
ever until this week, until like two days ago. And I, in fact, I remember I emailed you guys a couple of days ago. I said, do I have to watch this movie? And Sasha, you said, well, of course you have to watch it because it won Best Picture, idiot. And so I had to watch it. But I'm so glad that I did. But I may, I may, my opinion of it may be colored by your enthusiasm for it, Sasha. And I was maybe more forgiving of it than, than I would have been otherwise because it, it did seem like for me, to me for years and years, the movie that I didn't care anything about seeing that wouldn't be, as you say, Craig, wouldn't be my cup of tea at all. I was willing to forgive it until I watched some of the movies that never had a chance at actually winning that were so much better that it kind of pissed me off a little bit. But that's that's really not fair to the movie. The movie deserves to be judged on its own terms. And um, for people who like that kind of story, and you know, actually it made me interested to read the book because I think the book would probably solve a lot of the problems that I had. You'll be with, blown uh, away by the book, I have to tell you. And, and that is one of the breathtaking things about watching the movie is, and I hate to say this because Anthony Minghella got so much shit for casting Kristen Scott Thomas. I mean, that the movie almost didn't get made. He almost didn't hire her. Her passion for the project is what drove her to be cast in it because she loved the book so much. But she's not that character. She is not. And mm-hmm. the character is somebody you drive a, a plane into the ground for. Right, a force of nature. Yeah, she's one of those once-in-a-lifetime. And, you know, I can still... Vi- I, I am so sexually attracted to Ray Fiennes that I can, totally, I can totally be down with it just because I like watching him be so... See, I thought, I thought Naveen Andrews, the guy who played Kip, is much hotter than uh, Ray Fiennes. Nah, it's all in the eyes. <laughs> See, um, I like their story of much better than the Ray Fiennes and the Christine... Um, the Kristen Scott love story. I just, I, I love that, because um, to me, Juliette Binoche was more of a lead. And she was... She's and, the lead. She's totally the lead. I know. Isn't it screwed up that they get they went the other way with it? It's so bad. Yeah, because Kristen, well, Kristen, Kristen Scott Thomas, if you look at the old, um, the previous awards, she was being placed in supporting actress. Um, but when the Academy came around, they gave her a lead and put Juliette Binoche because they kind of felt that um, I think the favorite was I don't I don't think um, Juliette Binoche would have won in the um, Best Actress because of um, Fargo mm-hmm. and so they placed her in Best Supporting Actress but then again they didn't think she was going to win that either because of Lauren Bacall. Julia Binoche probably had more. It seems like to me that she had more screen time than she Kristen did. Thought. She was yeah. the typical Weinstein trick of putting a lead performance in a supporting category, category and then they can't mm-hmm. lose. Like uh, we just saw it with Christoph Waltz in mm-hmm. Django Unchained. Mm-hmm. That's a lead performance, and then they turn around and they get Jennifer Lawrence in a lead. Perf- in a she's a supporting and she gets in put in lead. But anyway, we should right. Guess. Yeah. So, Anyway, uh, uh, glad you brought that up. <laughs> we had a, we had a, we had a slam Jennifer Lawrence for a couple of weeks. That's right. We haven't talked about that. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta get that. Should we get on? Oh, poor Jennifer. <laughs> She's doing okay without us. She's, She's doing fine. She'll be fine. I'm really looking forward to American Hustle too. But yeah, I mean, I was I was really impressed with English patient. I was impressed by how elegant the production design was. Really sophisticated, elegant production design on pretty much probably a shoestring budget, considering that they were strapped for money, you know, how they were able to, what they were able to do with the little amount of money that they had. I'm kind of surprised that I wasn't, that I didn't think the acting across the board was also first rate. I really liked the women. I liked both of the, um, Juliet Badosh and Kristen Todd Thomas, really a lot, a lot, a lot. But I thought all of the other performances were somehow just off-key, even like um, Colin Firth and everybody just didn't, didn't really ring true for me. 
But I, I, know I can't. I'm, I'm not going to talk. I'm not going to talk down about Ray Fiennes if we have a crush on him this week. <laughs> well, I love Ray Fiennes. He just didn't do it for me in this particular. I just I can't help it with that guy. He's just one of those. It's guys. amazing. He still has so much sex appeal, burnt to a crisp in the bed, right? <laughs> it made me wonder how badly burned is he down there. That's the important question well, we need know, to find out. Listen, in my fantasy world, he is certainly not burned down there. <laughs> can, can I guess the scene that uh, makes you twitch? Yeah. Is it the scene where he tells her that he can still taste her? Mm, yeah, that's it's one of them. But what I, what, oh, there's other ones? That one, oh, when he says so spoon, and he says, I could taste you with your taste in my mouth or whatever. And then she comes and they have sex up against the wall. That's pretty intense. It's just his, his obsession, you know, the way he looks at her, you know. And, oh, yeah, the, that look. When the first time they dance together and she's trying to make a joke and trying to make light of him, and she, he locks eyes with her and he's not even smiling. And yeah. she, she knows right then he's got her. I know, and it's weird because you, in the book you really understand it. It makes mm-hmm. so much beautiful, scary, horrible sense. In the movie, it's you're kind of going, huh? Really, really? Oh. <laughs> it probably should be added that a I'm a failed romantic who probably no longer even believes in that word, and I'm also jaded. And if there's not mattress pounding, then it's not very exciting to me. A strong look isn't going to cut it for me anymore. So right, I'm, I'm right. totally the wrong target audience for this movie. <laughs> they could have they could have gone and and saying ditto with Juliet Binoche. You know, like we could have seen a, a, a little more heat in their relationship. It was pretty. She's hot on her own. She I mean, she was hot. Everything she did was hot. Every time that she would um, wash her face, fa- wash her face was hot. You know? Yeah, for sure. She's beautiful. She's yeah. so beautiful in that movie. She's always wet and eating fruit. And that's what I mean. Yeah, no just when she's wet all the time. <laughs> very know, very earthy <laughs> and. Uh... Oh, I'm sorry, you are. <laughs> You are getting all erotic over there. I didn't catch on that. Oh, no, I was just saying. Yeah, I'm was... broken. <laughs> I need mattress pounding. It, it definitely has that quality to it, which is funny because it has Colin Firth as the, like, frumpy, unattractive husband, which is such a joke. He's, like, the biggest heartthrob in Hollywood now. But he plays the frumpy husband, you know, that she rejects um, to, to go. You know, and that's one of the problems with the movie, although you guys, we're the only ones that have problems with it. Most people don't. Right. Um, but that, to me, I just... It's a love-hate movie, though. People just really, really love the movie. A lot of our readers have said saying how much they really like it, and it's one of the favorite best pictures of all time. And other people just can't stand it. You know, I think Craig, maybe you don't really like it too much as much as we do. I don't uh, hate it. I don't. But it's not, like I said, it's not for me. You know what makes me dislike it? And this is a thing that Oscar does to movies. I just can't see that it won. How many Oscars did it win? Seven or nine? Nine. So that's how. That's just, that's the same amount of Oscars that Schindler's List won. And that's what no, I can't see. More. You know, when you look at it that way, it just doesn't no, Ryan, seem like they're on the more. same won, level. It won more. Yeah, you know, I'm always saying it's not fair to judge a movie by how many Oscars it won. You, you can't hold that against it. But right, because I find then, myself but, doing that, and, I, and I, I shouldn't. I should I should ease off a little bit. I think what you're saying, that the fact that you approach it as this major Oscar winner, that it's like, wow, this must be really something special. Mm-hmm. And then it's kind of not, and then you sort of backlash against it. That's what I do. Right? Well, the thing is... Well, can I say something? Yeah, um, yes, well, the thing about the movie was that you guys, I personally, for me, I thought it was an okay movie. I didn't think it was a great movie. Um, it was sweeping by all means. You know, it's a, it's a sweeping love story. You know, that's what it was meant to be. Um, but for me, I got kind of bored with the flashbacks back and forth. That kind of bored me. I, I kind of wish it would have stayed with one story instead of going from 
how their love story started through the middle and he got injured and she died. I mean, I just got, I got kind of bored with the flash forward backwards and stuff like that. I think for me, that's like a trapping for a lot of movies. And, and it's just, I lost interest on so many levels, even though I, I think it's a good, it is for me a good movie. It's not something that I would want to see over and over again. I remember what your reaction was at the time. When I first saw it, I thought, because I saw it on the big screen, and I thought, wow, this was epic, because that's what it was. It was sweeping epic. And for me, you know, I like old-fashioned films, so it always takes me back to those old epic films that they used to make, sweeping love stories back in the 50s and and 60s. That's what it reminded me of, because that's how it was. It was a sweeping, tragic love story. And so I, I loved that part of it. But after a while, when you have a second taste it wasn't as important to me when i saw it the second time around yeah there's there's still some things i love about it like i think it it is juliette binoche's story and it's about the people who she takes care of who die the romance is sort of some of the words that that are said and expressed give you a taste of what the book is really like and how beautiful the language of the book is and you know when she leaves there when she finally kills off the english patient she's finally free you know you do feel a sense of hope um but anyway we should we should say that before we move on from the english patient because we have a lot of great movies to talk about uh walter murch won for both sound and film editing that year he was a huge part of putting you know the success of the english patient gabriel yared won for score and roth won for costume i mean these are heavy hitters john seal beat um roger deakins for fargo and he beat him for cinematography um so you know that's a it's a pretty classy joint this English patient you know mm-hmm, these definitely. costumers and, and it shows yeah it's handsome handsome it's your typical what anybody would say is an what's an Oscar movie the English patient that's an Oscar movie you know mm-hmm. but let's we can, whenever a movie has flashbacks although I know Michael I can kind of see what you I, I kind of like the flashbacks because for me the 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 if they'd only stuck with the patient after he was burned it would have been so such a downer the movie would have been such a downer if he didn't have the relief of going back to the past to see what he was like when he was still you know fit and able and and, and beautiful you know that right. that to me that to me really it was a break from get, from 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 being trapped in the hospital bed when your you know your skin is slipping off of your bones but whenever a movie does that back, skillfully switches back and forth between two different um, parallel stories that's a, that's a that's a pretty much a guaranteed oscar if you do it well yeah and that's what walter Mar- merch did plus nazis all right so mm-hmm. should we move on to we can move on yeah. to fargo or jerry maguire um, or uh, yeah, I guess we. I didn't, you guys can talk about Jerry Maguire. I'm not fond of that movie too much. I was going to say, is that air coming out of a balloon? I hear. I'm <laughs> <laughs> deflated to think about Jerry Maguire. It's like one of these things is not like the others. Well, Jerry Maguire was probably the closest that Cameron Crowe ever got to winning an Oscar, and part of that was Tom Cruise, as we've been talking about, you know, for the last few years, was really on a major high. This was his fifth. Consecutive fifth or sixth consecutive hundred million dollar baby of his career consecutive, mm-hmm. and so he could not do any wrong with the audiences. The Academy was never really going to give him 
um, Best Actor, but um, but they fell in love with Jerry Maguire and hate it though you will. Uh, Michael and I suffered through it <laughs> the other day, and uh, we both agreed that Cuba Gooding Jr. is fantastic and he pops and he's just as good now. Watching it back, you know he's still the best thing in the movie. Um, but Bonnie Hunt also has a small part. She's really really funny. Cameron Crowe is great with. Uh, supporting characters in his film, his it's, it comes off in this day and age in 2013 as really super sappy, like so sappy you can barely get it down. You're getting a you're in a sugar coma by the end of the movie, mm-hmm. and you know the big casting thing was Renee Zellweger as as um, as the love interest when she uh, beat out a lot of really famous actresses. I think that the original casting for this movie was going to be Winona Ryder and oh god, who was the other guy? I'll have to look up the trivia, but there was some other actor who, who couldn't who couldn't end up doing it. Um, and every other person he wanted for that part was like Courtney Love, and they promised it to Janine Garofalo if she lost weight, and so she lost weight. But by the time she lost weight, they had already given it to Renee Zellweger. And Renee Zellweger is good, but she's kind of the opposite of what he seemed to have in mind, which was a, an edgier kind of girl. Like she plays a really mm. sweet small town, and I never really bought it that Jerry Maguire would have fallen for her. And he was kind of an asshole. And she, you know, just says, "Oh, it's not good enough for me." And then he comes back and says, "You complete me." It's just, I mean, as much as I love Cameron Crowe, I just never bought that. I never bought that that character would be interested in her no matter what. And I felt like she was just a total rebound girl. Well, what I was telling Sasha when we were watching the movies, I go, Tom Cruise kind of plays the same character. He always plays this character who's an asshole in the beginning, and then towards the middle until the end of the film, he has a redeeming quality. He did it with um, Rain Man. Rain Man. He did it with A Few Good Men. Top Gun. Top Gun. So, you know, he played, to me, the same character. And I, the only good thing about this movie was was Cuba Gooding. I mean, he, he just... Made that part was he was born to play that part. He made that film what it was. I mean, he was just so fantastic. And then the drawback was the cheesy line like "You complete me." Kind of reminded me of love stories. Um, love never love means never having to say you're sorry. It just was this kind of a cheesy line to me. That I don't know. It 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 just was kind of like okay, so you complete me. All right. I mean, it just <laughs> I. I I just got. Who says that? <laughs> like nobody. I mean, people don't talk like that because it's become kind of a cultural cliche. Just, just like the love story you're talking about. It's like a thing people would say, and it was a reference to the movie. So it kind of makes it seem even less realistic. Right. And later on, throughout the years, people gonna, people are going to go back and go, "What? You complete me? What? What does that mean? I mean, it's just. I don't know. It was just kind of sappy and corny to me. Yeah, but people people, people went ape shit for that though. They, I know, I know, and they, and they used do. it over and over again in all kinds. Considering what rom coms, what romantic comedies usually are, it's a, it's such a step above all the rest. Yeah. It, and, and so you have to give it credit for that. It is really the Kevin Crow really does write great characters, and he does write aside from his quotable lines like that that some kind of, sometimes can make you cringe. He he does write really good, really good dialogue. Also, I think. Yeah, and it's sweet. Her her relationship with her son, and and it's just unfortunate that every character in that movie has to give a speech when they talk. Like if you watch it mm. back, it's like Aaron Sorkin mixed mm. with Hallmark. It's it's like they all. It's like a poor man's um, uh, James L. Brooks. Our little project, our company, had a very big night. A very 
very big night. But it wasn't complete. It wasn't nearly close to being in the same vicinity as complete. Because I couldn't share it with you. I couldn't hear your voice. Or laugh about it with you. I miss my, I miss my wife. We live in a cynical world, a cynical world. And we work in a business of tough competitors. One of the trivia things about this movie is that um, he modeled the whole uh, writing his, um, you know, that mission statement after Jeffrey Katzenberg when he left Disney. Oh yeah, we we talked about that, didn't we? No, we. Didn't. I thought yeah, I thought we had mentioned that in one of the previous podcasts about Katzenberg's letter. Where did I read hear about that? Or read, read? I thought we did discuss that. Oh, I thought you meant on this podcast. No, we oh, haven't. Yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, that's what he he modeled it after. Um, and he had wanted uh, Billy Wilder to play the old guy in the movie. You know, who's always giving advice. And he asked Billy Wilder over and over, and he kept saying no because he he thought that this movie was kind of like a modern day The Apartment. And he wanted the Renee Zellweger character to be like uh, Shirley MacLaine. And he wanted Billy Wilder to play that part, but, but he turned him down. And eventually they ended up becoming friends, and, and he wrote a, and Cameron Crowe wrote, wrote a book about him. Mm-hmm. Was Billy Wilder still alive at the time? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they knew they did know each other, and I I think that book is like a book of interviews, a book of conversations they had together huh. that, that Cameron Crowe transcribed. It's a great book. And I'm a, I'm a Cameron Crowe fan, I have to admit. I love Almost Famous. Um, I think it's a great movie. Jerry Maguire is not one of my favorites of his, just because I feel like it really does, it's just too sappy to endure. Yeah, I like it. I haven't seen it for years and years and years, but I've always had a fondness for it. It's not a movie that I love and not a movie that I'm going to sit down and watch all the time. But it um, it it does an interesting thing that, and it's I think the reason that it was popular is that it is that it it manages to be a romance a romantic comedy that appeals to male and female audiences both. There's a little something for everybody in it. Yeah, mm. it's just if you watch it for me, like I love the stuff with. Cuba Gooding Jr. I love the stuff with his job, and I love the stuff with Kelly Preston, who I think is hilarious as his ex-girlfriend. And then it moves on to the love story, and uh, the love story, something about it to me just doesn't ring true because, you know, it's almost like he grabs her as a last-ditch effort. It's not like The Apartment, um, which is totally different in The Apartment. 
um, Shirley MacLaine is is having an affair with a married man. She ends up in Jack Lemmon's apartment. He harbors love for her, takes care of her, and I guess you could say that um, Tom Cruise was the was the other. You know, Tom Cruise was the one who um, ends up in her apartment, and she's the Jack Lemmon character, and she's the ordinary one that he finally. That's how. Yeah, you'd have to read it like that, wouldn't you? Because. Yeah. Otherwise, it doesn't work as a, as a comparison, as a parallel at all. But that's where the confusion comes in, because Renee Zellweger doesn't seem like that ordinary Jack Lemony kind of character. That's exactly mm-hmm. right, yeah. So, I'm so, would you, so would you say that um, it really didn't need that love story then? It could have um, carried the movie on its own without the love story? No, because the whole point is that he fa- that he can open up his heart and fall in love at the end. I mean, he that's what he needs. You know, that's what he needs. And he needs her. It's just... For some reason, to me, it just never really rings true. I always feel bad for her in every scene. I always feel like she's, well, I always feel like she's kind of like me, actually. She's always trying too hard, and she's, you know, she's letting him get away with awful things he says to her and stuff. It's like, come on. Well, another thing too, you know, even though he's like, he's supposed to, he's supposed to be redeemed at the end of the movie because he finds out that money's not the only thing anymore, and then the movie ends with the hundred million dollar contract. Right. So exactly. suddenly, then right. he still gets the money too. So he gets it all. So it's like he gets he his moral really... victory and the money. <laughs> so the sequel. So the sequel is that after he gets the money, he becomes the same character he was in the beginning. <laughs> you know, if there was a sequel. Right. That way, would be uh, money never get, sleeps. Right. And they get a money never sleeps. <laughs> I have to say, um, though, that um, this is just a little bit of, of trivia. But the little kid who played a little boy, you guys should see him now. This kid is like turned into. He looks like a gay porn star. Okay. Yeah, that's what oh, he looks really? like. Gay, yeah, yeah. He, I wonder he bumped, what. I, I wonder what happened to him. Oh yeah. He yeah, bumped I'm up too. and everything, and they they put they splashed his picture like two years ago, and this guy's like ripped and everything. Completely different kid. Never would have guessed that that would have happened. I think at the for me at the end of the day, what what I think tra- his tragic flaw as a writer, Cameron Crowe is he's too precious with himself. His protagonist is always treated with too much preciousness. And I think he wants them to be these supermen with, you know, like the kid and almost famous. Of course, he's, you know, becomes this famous writer. And Jerry Maguire, you know, comes out on top and is totally successful. You know, it's like they're losers making good every time. And that's great for Frank Capra movies and Billy Wilder movies. But for some reason with his movies, it's sort of like he's spending so much time making you appreciate this person. You know, it's almost like thou dost protest too much. You know, it's it's, it's almost too much. Same. It's not real life. You know, it's not real Well, life. they are very much like um, Frank Capra movies. But the world has changed and audiences have changed and we've changed and we're more cynical now. It, it's harder to accept movies like that. Anyway, than than it would have been if we'd grown up in the 1940s. Yeah, but it's sort of like they're flawed, but not flawed. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. In, in Capra, his characters are flawed. You know, they mm-hmm. are. They're flawed. George Bailey is flawed. You know, people forget how dark some of those movies are. Yeah, and I don't see that same acknowledgement in a lot of um, Cameron Crowe. I'm a big fan, believe me. But I'm just saying that. Mm-hmm. Talk about dark, though. This is one of the darkest years at the Oscars ever, isn't it, with Fargo? Even though Fargo's a comedy, it's, it's, it's a really brutal, dark, dark, <laughs> murderous, bloody comedy, you know? Secrets and Lies is, is, a, is not is not so much dark as it is dingy, you know? English Patient is very depressing. Shine is de- 
I don't see Shine as, a, as an uplifting movie at all because I because if you know the real story, the guy was never cured. He still has a lot of really serious mental problems, and so the movie was false that way. Oh, yeah. Breaking the Waves is really bleak. Train Spotting, you know, the movies, all of them, and People versus Larry Flint. Just you know, take, it's you can it's hard to find a movie that, in this year that was really. Aside from Jerry Maguire, that was a happy had a happy ending. Hearing you mention those titles and what Craig said before. Um, Shine didn't belong with Best Picture Race. I'm sorry. Didn't. There's so many better movies that year than Shine. It's so unbelievable that it got in. But um, can we talk about Fargo now, finally? Should we do another? It's our Coen yeah. Brothers Part 3. Another Coen podcast. How do we even talk about Fargo? How do you talk about perfection? Well, for me, I approach it in terms of the Oscar podcast like this. I was, I was At that point, I was sort of... I was still in my snobby phase, and I was still anti-Oscar. And the Coen brothers, to me, up to that point, were this thing that like me and my friends really liked, and nobody that we deemed were not cool didn't even know who they were. And then all of a sudden, they're getting nominated for Oscars. So it was a really strange year for me. It, it, it my, my worlds collided, kind of. You know what I mean? <laughs> Uh, you might not have even been aware or too conscious of the fact that they had uh, made a big splash at Cannes Film Festival with Martin Fink. Or if you did, it was in a different. That was in a different realm, right? Everyone? Yeah, I, I I separate Cannes from the Oscars, yeah. um, and so I knew about Martin Fink, um, and I knew that Fargo was really popular. But it it sort of achieved this crossover success that I wasn't expecting. Yeah. Not a bad thing. It, it and, and they've never looked back. Ever since they made Fargo, they've always been in the conversation, I think. And it's 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 just kind of interesting how they I'm not I still I'm still not really sure how it happened because when you look at Fargo, like you were saying, it's a really dark, dark movie, but it it just pushed the right button somehow. Well it was yeah. a moment that everybody sort of agreed that the Coens were geniuses. Because before that, like you said, the, their movies were um, still on the fringes, and and I remember I keep having to say this. I'm such an old, bitter old woman, but I'm just saying that you know I remember the way people talk. You know, Craig, yes, he was one of the people that liked him, but I knew a lot of people that thought they were posers and pretentious, and their movies weren't very good, and they were soulless. But Fargo was one of those movies that you know it just can't be denied. It's so good, you know, and the reviews were so great. Um, it didn't. It wasn't one of the top box office movies of the year, but it became a cultural phenomenon, and it still is. I mean, even if you separate out um, the two qualities that movie brings to the table, which is one, the Coens, uh, Roger Deakins, the incredible ensemble cast, and just one of the most visually stunning movies you'll ever see. Funny, weird, creepy, violent. Um, you know, just their total style completely. But Carter Burwell's score. Carter Burwell and then mm-hmm. but then you take Marge you take Marge mm-hmm. and Marge's dialogue and what that became in America, which was everybody talking like that. Even now, Fargo, everybody will say that. <laughs> How are we doing then, all right? You know, everybody quotes her in the movie and, and that's in that way they hit the mainstream like they never had before. You know. And how great that they did it with the they wrote a they wrote a uh, a role like that for their wife and sister in law. 
you know. Right, right. They wrote they wrote that part, <laughs> and they paid homage to their to their roots, really, with mm-hmm. Fargo. But you're right about the up until Fargo, even though they had had the success in Cannes and everything, and even though they had a, a sort of a cult following, even a lot of the major critics up until Fargo were saying how that they were just too quirky and artsy for yeah. quirkiness' sake. You know, it was they were too self consciously quirky, and people critics didn't know how to take that. Even a movie that was probably one of their least quirky. Um, Miller's Crossing was overlooked and, and 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 disregarded. Yeah, and I think they sort of long for those days again. Like in Lewin Davis, you can tell that that's sort of about um, accidental success and and being considered a genius when there are so many other stories that ran parallel to yours that never got that kind of notice. And if you take mm-hmm. and you look at Fargo now, and you go and you zoom up to, ahead to 2013. You can really see the maturity in their storytelling in a way that that wasn't there before back then, but it, it's also like they didn't know who they would become. Okay, I want you to tell me what these fellas looked like. Well, the little guy—he was kind of funny looking. In what way? I don't know, just funny looking. Can you be any more specific? I couldn't really say. He wasn't circumcised. Was he funny looking apart from that? Yeah. So, you were having sex with a little fella then? Uh-huh. Is there anything else you can tell me about him? No. Like I say, he was funny looking. More than most people, even. And I have read that this past week, and I was trying to find some things, some some little trivia or anecdotes about Fargo. I was trying to, to read a little bit about it, and I ran across like four or five different times where Joel and Ethan both said... That couldn't understand the success, the success of Fargo either. They couldn't understand what made it so much better than the other movies they had done in the Academy's eyes or in the eyes of critics or in the eyes of audiences. To them, it was just another movie, and it wasn't even as good as some of the movies they thought that they had done before. And so they didn't get it. They couldn't figure out what they had done right. I know, but how charming is Marge? Uh-huh, What's interesting absolutely. about Marge is that um, th- one of the knocks against them, especially earlier in their career, is that they set up these these yokel hayseed characters and sort of torture them and make fun of them, and people sort of assume there's a sort of intellectual snobbery going on with right. them. And there's a degree of that. They're, they're satirizing Marge's character a little bit, but there's a what makes it work is that there's a huge well of affection for her also, and she's totally key to making this dark film noir story working because she's the humanity, she's mm-hmm. she's the audience, and she's plunked down into the middle of this horror that's just underneath the surface of this sort of placid Americana that that you can everybody can identify with it and. Yeah. I think it proves once and for all that the people who criticized them for that earlier in their career were wrong. And and Marge stands for the goodness in life in that movie. Absolutely, like, and he, she ends she ends with the goodness in life. Despite ends... seeing a guy stuffing a leg into a wood chipper, <laughs> she's mystified at the end, but she's not she she doesn't let she doesn't let go of her goodness and her humanity. She just shames him. He's sitting in the yeah. back, one of the biggest badasses who nobody could shame. She gets to him when she says, you know, when she starts confronting him and saying, you know, how can you? You know, it, it's a beautiful day, and you look outside, and and it's 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 like blinding, you know, blizzard, <laughs> bleak <laughs> snow. But to Marge, it's a beautiful day. So that was Mrs. Lundegaard on the floor in there. And I guess that was your accomplice in the wood chipper. 
almost three people in Brainerd. And for what? For a little bit of money. There's more to life than a little money, you know. Don't you know that? And here you are. And it's a beautiful day. And, you know, the whole first part of Fargo is all, you know, the stuff with Steve Buscemi and, you know, this horrible, isn't it, they, they track down that guy and they kill those two teenagers and then all of a sudden it stops and the sun comes up and Marge wakes up. And it's almost like a fairy tale, like her husband, no, I got to make you some eggs. And she comes <laughs> up and you see her pregnant stomach, you know, and, and he makes her some eggs and then her car doesn't work and she's the sheriff and, you know, she's pregnant and she's so smart. Like, she's simple, but she's so smart. She's smarter than everybody that she works with, for one thing. Mm-hmm. There's so much going on in the movie, so much backstory, before, like you said, before she even appears on screen, and, the, and then so much happening that they have to show you that's happening that she's not involved in, the scene that she's not in. There's really not a lot of screen time that she occupies, but she is, she's, once you see her, she is in, she, you can't forget her throughout the entire movie. She's always, she is the heart and soul of the movie. She's the part you remember. Yeah. Exactly. And I think William H. Macy is, is Jerry Lundegaard. There's a lot of pathos to him, too. And that's mm-hmm. an element that that was a little lacking in some of their earlier films. This feel, film feels more mature because there's a lot more sympathy, I think, for their characters. That was one of the problems I always had. That's one that I said before that Barton Fink was one of the most difficult um, of the Coen Brothers movies for me to get into because it is so unsympathetic to all the characters, I think. It's pretty bleak. Well, you know, um, at at the same time, who was I talking with this? Was it you, Craig? We were talking about how funny the Coen brothers are. Um, Us? Talking about the Coen brothers? Never. (laughs) No, but but really, we were talking about how funny they were because, like, Steve Buscemi, after he gets in the fight with, with, you know, the father of the the poor kidnapped wife, and his face is hanging off. I got shot in the face! He got shot in the face, and he comes in and he goes, "You should see the other guy." He's dead. <laughs> He's got blood pouring down his face. I mean, it's ridiculous, but it's it's so funny. I promised myself I wasn't going to quote the movie, but I have to say, just once, we go to Pancake's house because <laughs> Gare Grimsrud is the best. Oh God. I just love that movie so much. Every little tiny thing about it is funny. See, this is this is where we just this is where it all falls apart, you guys. But no, the um the the little kid, the little soccer kid, you know, their kid is so funny and um and and can we talk about Mike <laughs> Mike Yanagita? <laughs> that the the Mike Yanagita character always sort of mystified me and I always I, I always kinda of thought, okay, yeah, they are sort of making fun of this guy. And I've never been able to quite resolve his part in it, but you know, it's the part where where Marge finally realizes that that 
people aren't necessarily being honest with her and that, mm, good that, point. They, all, yeah. that they all have an agenda. You know, mm-hmm. it's like he, it becomes clear to her that he's not telling her everything. And that's the clue to her to go back and talk to William H. Macy one last time when yeah. he finally panics and, and runs. But that's there's excellent. one other yeah. little thing that, that's happening with her, which is she's pregnant. She's getting, She's married. You know, they have a very normal, steady life. And, you know, she's going to the big city and she's meeting up with mm-hmm. a guy who supposedly had a crush on her and she kind of gets a little dressed up. And I think to Marge, it's sort of a way to a, a little window to a different possibility of a life she might have had. Right, a little flirtation. <laughs> it gets so weird so fast. <laughs> <laughs> with the dead wife and, and their crappy buffet like... restaurant. <laughs> Do you mind if I sit over here? No, why don't you go sit over there? I'd prefer that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, well, uh, I was married, uh, I was married to, you mind if I sit over here? Uh, I was married to Linda Cooksey. No, why don't you sit over there? I prefer that. Huh? Oh. Oh, uh, okay. Sorry. Oh, no, Uh, no, just so I can see you, don't have to turn my neck. Oh, sure, sure, I I understand. I, I didn't mean to. No, uh, no. That's fine. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Uh, sorry. Uh, so, uh, I was married to Linda Cooksey. You, you remember Linda? She was a year behind us. Yeah, I think I remember. Yeah. yeah. She. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so it didn't work out, huh? Well, and then I and then I've been working for Honeywell for a few years now. Oh, well, they're a good outfit. Yeah. If you're an engineer, yeah, you could do a lot worse. Uh, but it's uh, n- not, uh, it's nothing like your, your achievement. Oh, well, it sounds like you're doing really super. It, it's not that, uh, it's not that things didn't work out. It's, uh, uh, Linda, uh, had leukemia, you know. Uh, she was, uh, she, she passed away. No. Uh, it was tough. Uh, there you go. It was a long, uh, she fought real hard, Marge. You know, uh, that's what, what can you say? Oh, better times, huh? Better times. Oh, and then I saw you on the TV, and uh, I remembered, you know, I always liked you. Well, I always liked you. I always much. liked you so much. So, Mike, uh, should we get together another time, you think? No, I... I... I'm sorry. It's, uh, you know, I shouldn't have done this. I shouldn't have done this. I should uh, I thought we'd have a really terrific time. It's okay, Mike. You were such a super lady. And then... I've been so lonely. <laughs> oh, God. Sorry, but that's like the, one of the funniest scenes ever in any movie. When they send out the swag for the uh, um, FYC um, in the packages, when they send out screeners and everything, they send out a little snow globe. In the snow globe, you shake it up, and there's Marge crouched over beside the police car vomiting. <laughs> <laughs> that was the swag that they sent out, a snow globe with, with, with Marge like, bent no, over. I just think up. I'm going to barf. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's so good. And I think, like you guys are saying, you're wondering what brought it, <clears throat> it into the Academy's arms and into the mainstream. And I really think it's her. I think it's her character. 
and the warmth of her character and how funny she was. And it might be because she's not intimidated by her husband, Joel Cohen, you know, mm-hmm. and that she was a little more confident in the part and able to really be funny and trust herself. And I don't know what it was, but, but from then on, you know, they, they were on the Cohen's channel and they got their work, you know. Absolutely, yeah, and, and they really did. After they, that's when they really started paying. They started looking forward to their movies after that. Instead of not knowing what to make of their movies before that, every every movie since then has been an event when you're anticipated and you wonder what they're going to do next. We can talk about this um, in the year that it actually comes out, but that's sort of the interesting thing to me about Big Lebowski, which came right after this. Mm-hmm. And it was pretty much widely dismissed because I think people were expecting this Oscar kind of movie from these guys. And it was much more of a throwback to their Raising Arizona days. And, of course, it has since become this weird cult hit. But at the time, it was it, it left people scratching their heads. And I've, I've noticed that they've done that throughout their career. They will have a mainstream-type success, and then they will fall back and and do something a little more... A little more quirky, and uh, mm-hmm. it, throws, it throws people off. It doesn't so much anymore, but there was a while there. Yeah, they confound people. They confound yeah. people's expectations, and that's I, one, of the, one of the reasons why I think that people resisted them for so long is because they couldn't p- pigeonhole them. I always think yeah, about it being it's, Joel and Ethan's different talent, like different. I straight, you know. I think that Joel is more the... This is my imaginings. I have no idea if it's true. They always say they collaborate, but I always see Joel as more the Fargo, No Country for Old Men, and I always see Ethan as more the absurdist, the more of the Big Lebowski, more of the burn-after-reading type to me, a a serious man and um, the new one. And I always see Joel as more the the epic John Ford kind of uh, director who prefers these sort of plain-spoken stories that aren't very, uh, you know, quirky. Mm-hmm. You know, one thing you mentioned last week, Sasha, about there being different different classes or different different schools of of, um, of filmmakers. There was like the Scorsese film, the Scorsese school, and the and the you know the the, the filmmakers who are influenced by other filmmakers. I think there's also a generational thing that goes on. The Cohen brothers were born in in the late '50s, and so they were. They were teenagers when the movies of the early 70s were coming out. And to think that when you're going to the movie, you're 14 or 15 years old, and you're seeing The French Connection, and you're seeing The Godfather, and the Chinatown, and everything when you're, when you're 14, 15, 16 years old. And that's when you get inspired to make movies, when you're that age. And I think that that has a lot to do with the, the, the sensibility, I think. That's, that's the thread that I see in them, that they, their move, their, their, Outlook, their attitude, their cinematic attitude reflects back to the early seventies. Their variety, sorry, the variety of movies I'm saying that were made in the seventies. You know, yeah, I was going to say the seventies would have to be the best film school on the planet. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So any directors that came out of that era were uh, shooting high, and they certainly, the Coens certainly um, pay homage, but they they really did make their own way as visionaries, and they continue to do that. You know up to now they just you know faithfully make movies that they're interested in they're lucky enough like woody allen that they can keep doing it for they always come in under budget and they always make a profit and that enables them to continue to make movies and and the oscars almost always pay attention to them especially when they try something really serious and and i you know i obviously can't wait to get to no country for old men which is like my favorite movie of all time Mm. that's later when they finally win best picture but fargo was is con- continues to be seen as their second closest 
you know, Oscar grab. Not that that means anything, but what that means in context of film history is it's considered it's it's up there as one of the greatest films of all time. When the American Film Institute did their uh, 100 greatest films of all time, Fargo was the most recent movie on that list. It was the it it was the only movie in in. But there's no other movie that's been more recently made than Fargo that's on that's on the list. Yeah. Is it the only one from the nineties? I almost said that, but I'm not sure about right. it. It may be the only one from the nineties. It's possible that it is. Um, so, so, and that's pretty a big that's a pretty big deal, you know. Yeah. Um, do you I, have any, Do you have anything about Fargo, Michael? No. All right. <laughs> I don't. I don't. It's I seen it once and it. Didn't do anything for me. Oh, That's the no. thing about them is that they're they're. I don't even want to say they're an acquired taste, but they're either you like them or you don't, and a lot of people just don't. I should you know, have watched it with you, Michael. Again, I should have watched it one more time with you. Yeah, I think some. I think sometimes, Michael, you have to watch a movie of theirs maybe two or three times. You know, I didn't like Burn after reading the first time I saw it. I made the mistake of reading the screenplay first, and I thought this just doesn't seem like it's got the snap of their of their usual writing. And so I was already sort of against the movie before I even saw it. And then when I saw it, I thought, eh, this is minor. This is a minor Coen Brothers film, but it's really not. After I saw it on HBO, then five or six times, every time I would see it, I liked it. More and more. Well, the Coen Brothers kind of remind me of Woody Allen. It's like I I like Woody Allen films, but his films are just not something I would want to see over and over again. And I get that with the Coens. I mean, I see them for the first time, and they're okay. But I I just don't have the drive to want to see them over and over again. Keep in mind, Michael's taste is more. He really loves classic films. Like I mm-hmm. came home the other day, and he was watching The Children's Hour with uh, Audrey Hepburn. And Sean well, McLean. Yeah, that, yeah, that's a great movie. So he has incredible appreciation for film, but it tends to be more in the earlier era. As much as I love them, I'm totally cool with people who don't. Like I said, I think they are. They march to their own tune, and if you don't like that tune, then it's like a it's like a sense of humor. Some people find certain things funny, and other people find other things funny, and they they're on a particular wavelength that is is just not appealing to a, a large number of people, and it, it it makes complete sense to me for some reason. Yeah, I guess. No, go ahead. I was just going to ask you, Michael. What was your? What is your favorite film from this year, from 1996? Would, would it be The English Patient because it's a more traditional movie? Um, I have I, I would have to say it would have to be Secrets and Lies. Oh yeah, let's want to segue into that because I yeah. would have to say that it's it's probably it's more. I like Secrets and Lies probably second to Fargo of all the movies from this year. I'm sorry that it didn't didn't win anything. It was nominated for seven or nine seven or nine Oscars. Seven, I think, but it didn't win any. It's a shame. Right. It's a small victory that it was nominated, though. Mm-hmm. I think. Well, you know, it's one of those. You know, it's it's a British film, but the way the reason why I liked it so much because I liked the idea because it it was about um, what happened during the war where a lot of black soldiers um, went to England and got a lot of English women pregnant. Mm-hmm. And came back to America, and some of them not even knowing that they had kids. And so here, this woman had to give her child up because her child was also black, mm-hmm. and she couldn't raise a black child in her white environment. And it's just, um, and I just, I, just, I found s- such a closeness to it because I can relate to it with members of my own family, the interracial. Um, Mm-hmm. part of the film and how she 
had to hide her daughter from other family members until she can have the right time to tell them, hey, I found my daughter, I have my daughter. And they had these secret meetings all the time. And it, it just was such emotional film to watch how she, and you, you kind of felt that she was actually going through this herself outside of the film herself. You know, you really believe the performances when you watch this film. The performances, top to bottom, every single performance in this movie is incredible. It's, it's probably the, it's the best acted movie of the year, I think, even right. the, more so than Fargo. Right. And and it's, Mike Lee's, it's Mike Lee's technique, what he does. He, te- he meets, you know, he meets with the characters. He meets with the actors and t- has them discuss the backstory of their characters before they even meet each other and before they even do any reading. But sometimes before he's even finished with the script, he's writing the screenplay along with the actors while he's discussing it with them and then they have all of these extensive rehearsals that that most movies don't bother to do that at all i mean you show up on set the day that you're filming the scene and that's the first time you see each other but he does a lot of rehearsals and so he gets a depth of performance out of actors that very few directors can do and we should mention that this was his first oscar nomination um what in in what would become a you know a a multi-decade a relationship with the academy they they uh <clears throat> they love mike lee and they continue to love him as a writer and uh, unfortunately his that that last movie that he made didn't get the kind of attention people thought it would but nonetheless i think that that the academy's ruled by actors and actors appreciate a director like uh like mike lee who who really gives the actors time um you know and he trusts them to improvise a lot of their lines, most of their lines. Mm-hmm. And we loved uh, Another Year. I remember two years ago or two, three years ago when we were talking about Another Year, we were really disappointed when it didn't get it more more attention. Interestingly enough, you know, Leslie Manville was in Secrets and Lies, too, and she's fantastic. <laughs> Great smart part. Yeah, amazing. There's a uh, there's a scene early in the film where you where we first meet Timothy Spall's character and he's in the studio and he's photograph he's doing the he's a portrait photographer and he's doing the typical portrait photographer thing and he's trying to he's seeing these real moments between people and he's trying to capture the phony moment for the mantelpiece and to me that says everything about Mike Lee and his career because he's doing exactly the opposite he's looking at the phony and trying to find the real in the middle of that. And, and movies are inherently artificial, but artists like him and um, Lars von Trier in his own way with Breaking Waves, but in a totally different way, are, are all trying to find real human truths within the artificialness of movie making. And, that, and when I mentioned earlier that I was talking about The English Patient and I was soured on it by the movies that I watched after it, Secrets and Lies was one of them because, to me, The English Patient is the portrait that you put up on the mantelpiece, and it's completely false, whereas Secrets and Lies is just built entirely on real human emotions, real human interactions, and, and it's trying to find truth and honesty instead of trying to tell us, you know, fairy stories about romance. Which is, it's not a fair comparison at all because they're two completely different movies, but watching them together like that was really difficult. Well, the contrast, yeah, the contrast in the filmmaking style and the filmmaking intention, I think, like you said, uh, there's one there's one thing of trying to take uh, an existing literary work and adapt it into a film 
form. And there's another thing of doing something organic, as organically as, as Mike Lee makes his films, where they grow along in the middle of making them, you know, where he's still writing them, and, and, and there, uh, there's so much improv- improvisation going on, as you said, Sasha. What you said there, Craig, that, that paragraph that you just spoke, I wish you would turn it into an essay, because that is really excellent. It's an excellent perspective on these movies of, of, the, of 1996. Well, thank you. I like that a lot. And that, I mean, that, and that you know, first, you wonder what he's doing with the portrait photography scenes. What, where that, what, what place that has in the movie? But I, mm-hmm. I, I, I got that too. I really felt like that he, these people show up at this, uh, to get their photographs taken, and they're not in the mood for it. And you're seeing their real personality. And he, he managed to capture the one false moment where he can get them to smile when they really none of them want to smile. Right. Yep, great movie. <laughs> we love that movie. We love it. I love those awkward silences. I actually got up to get a piece of chocolate, so I can't. And I, oh, that's I left a, it's you guys okay. Too. But we were just saying it's, just, it's a miracle that it recently. was even nominated, and it's a it's a wonderful yeah. thing that it was nominated. It probably yeah, yeah, yeah. got the movie. Probably got yeah. a lot more people to see it, and probably helped Mike Lee um, get a lot. Uh, made his future movies easier to make and everything. Well, it's a shame it didn't win time. anything, but what you can almost kind of understand that it was almost, it's one of those movies that's almost too good for the Oscars. Well, well, what was know, going on at the time? Hang on, just let me say this one thing, okay, please? Let me just mm-hmm. say this one thing. Okay. What was going on at the time was that the Oscars were being called, it was being called the Year of the Independence. <laughs> because mm-hmm. at the time, believe it or not, Miramax was considered an independent and not a big studio movie. Secrets and Lies was huge. It was it was a critical darling um, it was the movie everybody was talking about. It was not surprising that it got in. What everybody was mostly surprised about was Jerry Maguire, I think, is the only movie that's a, a big studio movie that year. Mm. So that's all I wanted to say was that it was considered, people thought of this year and all the press about the Oscars was the year of the independence. And it seems like it's totally normal now, but back then it wasn't. You well, you know, know um, speaking of, of secret, Secrets and Lies and how that it got in for Best Picture, I think the problem with a lot of British films is that it reminds people of sort of a masterpiece theater type deal from like PBS. And so people don't kind of, when they sit and watch those films, it's almost like watching something that they would see on television. So they don't, they kind of don't have that sort of, that impact for Oscars, you know, and Secrets and Lies kind of has that masterpiece theater feel to it. You know, you can turn on TV any time of the day and see this type of film, you know, so when it shows, comes out as a motion picture, you have to give it a little bit more attention, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that's, and that's probably why in, in my world about- of thinking, you know, that's what happened here. Well, well I know the, for myself, the, um, I never saw that kind of acting unless it was on PBS. You just never saw that kind of acting in American movies. That's something that only the British actors do that, that, that no other actors, no other nationality of actors in the world can do, really. That naturalistic, um, deep, um, rich portrayals of, of characters that you feel like that you know them inside out by the end of the, by the, end of the movie. Absolutely. You just don't you rarely see that. In but if you, um, if you look at the box office, what was driving the box office that year... 
It's pretty breathtaking compared to what was nominated for the Oscars, and that's another reason why people kept saying it was the year of the independence. You had, number one, Independence Day. Well, there was, that's, I was, two, was going to interrupt real quickly, though. You know, there were a lot of headlines about this was the year of the independence movie, the independent movies. They were saying Independence Day, and then they were making a play on words because Independence Day was in the theaters and it was making a big splash. And so it's funny how those kind of labels can become attached just because it makes a cute headline, because yeah. people were making a play on words about independence with a uh, T upon Apostrophe S and Independence yeah, yeah, yeah. CE, you know. So it's just funny how those things but it can stick. But it is really true at the same time that the movies that were nominated this year were predominantly independent films. Yeah. Anyway, go ahead. I'm sorry. Okay. So number two, Twister. Um, number three, Mission Impossible. Number four, The Rock. Number five, Hunchback of Notre Dame, Disney movie. Number six, 101 Dalmatians. Number seven, Ransom. Number eight, The Nutty Professor. Number nine, Jerry Maguire. That's the only... Um, Best Picture movie so far. Number 10, Eraser. Number 11, The English Patient. Very surprising, so you can see why it won. It was doing really well at the box office. Ion being an independent film. Space Jam was number 12. The Birdcage, number 13. Uh, The First Wives Club, which Michael and I did watch because it's one of my favorite movies. Uh, Number 14, 15, Scream. 16, Sleepers. 17, Daylight. 18, A Time to Kill. 19, Phenomenon. 20 broken arrow so i think this is really you can really start to see a disconnect now between the oscars and what the studios are dishing out what's making money and, yeah let's just i always know and i want and we should blame the studios but we should also blame the audiences the audiences should be ashamed of themselves for paying to see that kind of junk those 20 movies there are only 15 of them that i would ever want to see you know some of them i've never seen and will never see and there's just so much junk that people pay to see that make that make studios know that that's where their money is so they has got to make those kind of movies because that's what people want yeah you know the thing is, though, I saw a number of those movies that are in the top ten, and I didn't like them when I saw them, but they, my, my vote still counted as a vote in favor of those movies because my ticket purchase is a part of the box office number. Now. Yeah, That's yeah, why yeah. It's, um, it's, it's dangerous to look at the box office, but it's unfortunate because, that studio, studios do because that's why they're in the business. And in 1996, who could have found Secrets and Lies in a the theater? Where would you even find it? If you live in the middle of the country, where are you even going to find Secrets and Lies? and shine and breaking the waves where can you you can't see those at the multiplex yeah you could you could actually then yeah things were very different then people didn't have um, secrets and lies worldwide made 52 million dollars which is incredible i was out in the country at that time so i was really i'm kind of detached from what was happening culturally and that's why i don't see these movies uh connected to each other the way that I do in a lot of other years because I, I didn't even see them all the same year. I didn't even see the Oscars this year. Well, the, the thing guy, was I, I, about box office then was that people didn't have the setups they have now. They didn't. We weren't stuck at home. You know, adults mm-hmm. weren't. Adults were going to the movies. So while these other huge tent poles were making tons and tons of money, Independence Day really set a new bar. Basically, mm-hmm. um, people, adults were still showing up at, at movies like that. You know, with um, with that kind of backing behind it, you know, back then you had Ebert and Siskel, I think, on TV talking. I don't think Siskel had died yet talking about certain movies. And, you know, it, it meant something back then. The The mm-hmm. message was not lost amid all the noise that we have now. You know, you could get people to go see the good movies. It, it did stand out. Once it got Oscar attention, it was playing places. People were talking about it. It brought up adoption. You know, it was it was quite, mm-hmm. quite a big deal at the time. It wasn't a... Nowadays, if it came out, it would probably be considered, you know, like another year, a teeny tiny little movie that no one really pays attention to. But back then, it was so much of a breakthrough. 
for filmmaking. Mm-hmm. And basically because of the performances, I think it was the performances in this film from all the actors that really drove this film and got people talking about it too because it was so well acted and well written. So you yeah, guys, yeah, absolutely. Both, both of you had um, movies, you and Ryan had had movies that you remember from this year that you watched that you liked a lot that didn't really make it into the Oscar race? Um, or, or they were partly in there, like um, Breaking the Waves and Primal Fear and um, The Crucible was that year, The Crucible with... Um, Daniel Day-Lewis. And Daniel Day-Lewis and... Um, the portrait of a lady jane campion had a movie that year Mm -hmm. um the mirror has two faces barbara streisand directed a movie that year that's two women uh who directed films both of them had supporting actress nominees but neither of them made best picture didn't wasn't lauren bacall widely expected to win yeah she was we should talk about that let's talk about lauren bacall yeah let's um go for it yeah, so what happened was it turned out in the end it's still considered one of the greatest upsets in Oscar history. And and when Julia Binoche got on stage, she actually says, um, this is yours or something like that. Like she refers to Lauren Bacall in a moment where she feels like, you know, Lauren Bacall deserved it. But yeah, the, the It's not uncommon for an, for an Oscar winner to mention all of the other nominees, but I think that in her speech she only mentioned Lauren Bacall. She, well, well, what she said was she said that she thought that Lauren Bacall was going to get it. And that's what she said. Well, and the thing was, Lauren, first of all, they couldn't compete because Lauren Bacall had a tiny part in that movie and Julia Binoche had a lead role. Mm. But um, they couldn't compete in that regard. There was no way they were going to give it to Lauren Bacall. But the other kind of whisper campaign that was happening at the time was that Lauren Bacall was a bitch and no one liked her and that she apparently slapped people and stuff backstage. That's what, that's what the word of mouth was uh, when she lost, was that nobody liked her. I don't know Makes how me like her is. more. Yeah, I'm just saying that's... <laughs> well, when she got nominated, a lot of people thought because she was married to Humphrey Bogart, he has an Oscar, you know, she's from old Hollywood, they really felt that it was sort of almost like giving the wife of Humphrey Bogart an Oscar, you know, and so everyone was like, she had all her old Hollywood fr- friends rallying behind her. This was sort of be like a, um, sort of like a homage to Humphrey Bogart by giving his wife an Oscar, you know, his widow an Oscar. And so there was, that was the talk back then. But I guess she just didn't have it or she was very well hated. and People didn't like her because they said that she is a difficult person. So maybe that has something to do with her not winning. But they also just really loved that movie, The English Patient. They loved it and mm-hmm. they loved Julia Binoche in it. It was like when they awarded Shakespeare in Love, uh, which is the next year, I think, um, she, uh, Shakespeare in Love was, they gave it to Judy Dench, you know, for supporting actress. They were not going to not give it to Juliet Binoche if they loved that movie. How could they love the movie and then not award that performance? It has to be one of those years and one of those categories where the voting was probably really, really close, but it just tipped the other way for Juliet Binoche for the reasons that you've mentioned. But I do, um, I do. I didn't know much about the Oscars that year, but I did remember knowing that Lauren Bacall was nominated and think, thinking to myself, without knowing any of the backstory or even having seen the movie, finally she's going to get her Oscar. She's going to now they've nominated. She's finally going to get the Oscar that she should have had back in the forties, but it didn't happen. Well, she was never. Well, she was a, never a really. Thing. Well, she was never really a great actress. You know, she I was. was I wouldn't say that. Maybe well, she was a pretty face. I think. Yeah. I mean, she had. She did some. She did some decent roles back then. But I never considered Lauren Bacall great. 
for some reason. Yeah, I think a filter of time sort of makes her her reputation seem bigger than it really was at the time. I think she was a little bit dismissed in current in when she was contemporary. Um, but we look back now and we see we think of the big heat and we think of to have and to have not. And Key Largo, both, both stuff like Key that. Largo, mm-hmm. and that, that's sort of what her reputation is is founded on. But she's <laughs> um, she's to people who didn't live through that time, she's a connection to that old Hollywood. Thing too that happened with her when she is one of those situations and one of those careers for a really, really pretty actress that once you are not 20 years old anymore, you don't get any more roles. She didn't really do a whole lot of really important movies between 19, 1950 and 19. 19- 90, really. I mean, her career was kind of like, I don't know, I'm looking at her, her filmography right now, and there's really doesn't, nothing that stands out too much. Murder on the Orient Express, maybe. Yeah. Um, I think she, it was just, you know, she just wasn't getting the roles, and so because sentiment. she had, she was known as the pretty face. And once she stopped having the twenty-year-old face, they, she stopped getting the the great parts. The yeah, she always looked very hard. If you look at her old film, she looked very hard. You know, she was pretty in the forties, but when it came into the fifties, her face started to change. She looked hard and rough. And that was sort of a turn off, I think. Michael, you're so terrible. Isn't that awful? No, I don't think that's true. I I think that people were, well, I mean, he may be right, but that doesn't mean that that's not why she would win. I mean, Judy Dench looked pretty hard when she won. Yeah. uh, And you would think, like you said, because she was such a, she she and Bogey were such a, a great couple, and then you would think that that their friendships would have, would have helped push her, um, into getting an Oscar sooner. Well, what you saw yeah. with that was something you see a lot in, in the Oscar race. If you're around and you listen closely, is that the public has one perception of things. They've been sold a bill of goods by Hollywood, and they believe it. You know, everybody was charmed and, and felt very nostalgic for Bogey and Bacall. And, mm-hmm. you know, yes, it had been years that she'd been in the business, and just for sticking around that long, it almost seemed like she deserved it. But you never hear about what really goes on inside the walls. And and there are people who have rubbed, you know, other people the wrong way during their different movie sets and word travels or they pissed off the crew or whatever it was, you know. Be nice to people on the way up because you're going to need them on the way back down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny, like you said, about the things that go on in the, the little cliquish friendships. Not, it's not cliquish, but just the natural friendships you're going to have with people that you work with and people in the industry and people who are your neighbors in Beverly Hills or Bel Air or whatever. You get to know those people and you form relationships with them. That's one thing we were talking a couple of weeks ago about. What is it? That, why would The Fugitive have been made it into the best picture realm? We, one thing I'd forgotten is that Danny Jansen and David Jansen were like the socialites of Hollywood at the time. They were they were always throwing parties, and David Jansen was the star of the television show The Fugitive. And so I'm sure everyone wanted to go see the movie version of what Danny Jansen's husband used to do, you know, just because of that clickish little insider thing that was going on. Right. Everyone everyone went to see The Fugitive just because they knew Danny Jansen was always throwing great parties. And there's Harvey Weinstein, and there's Peggy Siegel, and there's people who throw these you know collective parties. For movies that never enter the blogosphere at all, like The Blind Side or The Help. Mm, they, right. they ride mm. under the radar. Uh, I mean, you should see how they're working the back end for The Butler. I love it how people keep coming up to me and saying, 
You know, I mean, I could turn out to be wrong. I could have egg all over my face, and I could be completely wrong that the butler will get any traction in, in the awards race. But you can bet there is, nonetheless, there's behind-the-scenes, back-end work being done that is bypassing all the, like, bloggers who say, you know, they don't stand a chance, and David Olio doesn't have stand a chance, and it's not going to be a Best Picture nominee, and yeah. Forrest Whitaker doesn't have a chance. And it, they could all be right. It could turn out that the movie's completely shut out. But you have to look at what it is, which is a huge ensemble cast with people like Jane Fonda and mm-hmm. John Cusack. And each one of those people has a network of friends and a network of supporters who are going to give their vote to them no matter what. Not just to them, but to their movie. And that's a huge, it's, it's practically the whole SAG membership in that movie. That's one thing. Then you have Oprah's network, her whole network, Oprah, mm-hmm. right? Then you've got Harvey Weinstein and his whole network. So, and even though you would think, or I would think, I'm always surprised that, that there's not more resentment against Harvey Weinstein than, than there is appreciation for him because he is, he does play people like a dog sometimes. He does really, he throws, he promises, makes promises he doesn't keep, and he, he, he plays one movie against the other, or he, he shelves some movie in order to make room for another movie that he's got going on. And you would think that he would have offended so many people over the years that the people would be tired of that. For instance, you may have read this, Sasha, about the English patient. Everyone, like you said, it had, they had trouble pulling the financing together. Saul Zanz had to put up $6 million of his own. Harvey Weinstein sort of came to the rescue and put up $10 million for it. But they had to really make it on a shoestring budget, and a lot of the crew and cast uh, deferred their payments. And they weren't going to they hadn't made any movie, any money from the movie when it was when it was nominated for the Oscars. But it went on to earn $232 million. But Juliet Binoche never got her salary. She never got paid because Weinstein Company said, it's still in the red. We haven't made our money back. The movie cost $31 million and made $232 million worldwide, and the cast and crew never got paid. God, they must have had huge marketing for that. I should dig. You know, some mm-hmm. nice reader sent me the FYC ads for the 90s. Mm-hmm. I'm going to start digging through those and look at the English patient. I'm sure they spent a pretty penny on it. Mm-hmm. And plus just the accounting. You know, those accounting tricks that they can do, that the studios do, do and the distributors do. Yeah. To, to make you, money disappear in the do, way that they can, uh, you know, write costs off. If you, you just say, back, well, it hasn't turned a profit yet. If you go back to the beginning and you look at Harvey Weinstein's influence on the Oscar race, where it's starting right about now and after this, well, it starts with the crying game. And then he's got, you know, a, in Miramax, he's got a contender every year. And then things fall out when Miramax gets bought and he has to become the Weinstein Co. But he's rebuilt that company up again to be as powerful. Mm-hmm. Everybody is grateful to him. Every actor owes him their oscar for the most part he look at the movies that that uh the weinstein co is distributing this year fruitvale station the butler um the nelson mandela movie i mean they actors and anybody in hollywood they worship the guy because he's one of the few like moguls in hollywood who still supports uh you know, actor-driven, script-driven, very good movies, and he stands behind the filmmaker. Movies for grown-ups. Movies for grown-ups with even scripts though, that don't have a lot of explosions and car chases and stuff. Even though people say he's Harvey Scissorhands and then he edits it and he controls mm-hmm. it and he manipulates it, none of that stuff can compete with the good that he brings to their That's got to be it, I guess. And plus, he's a guy who loves movies, which is a rarity in, in Hollywood power positions today. Mm-hmm. And he's, yeah, he's invested like, in people winning. Like, he was really invested in Martin Scorsese winning an Oscar, for instance. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I'm glad you brought up the butler because I've been quietly thinking that I uh, that, and you mentioned the sort of the blogger bubble, and and Gravity is one of the movies that's definitely inside the blogger bubble, and everybody's talking about it. 
and anything is possible, especially when there's multiple nominations and you have to factor in the, how much how much money it's made. But I just have this feeling that the Butler is going to get much more Oscar attention than Gravity is going to get in the big categories. Well, look hmm. at it. I mean, top to bottom, it's it's made over a hundred million. It's heading toward a hundred and twenty million dollars. It's written. It's it's directed by Lee Daniels, who's the only black director who has ever gotten a best director, best picture nomination. I don't know why my Oscar blogging friends don't see all these things that I see. I see a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow when I look at the Butler and Oscar. There's something there's they always like, one, and they're looking is. at online buzz, and mm-hmm. online buzz is is generational. I think. But you would think they would look at Oscar history and know that there that there's always that one movie. There's a movie like The Butler every year, nearly, you know? And it's and got more going that, that for is, it, even than The Blind Side and The Help. It's got more going for mm-hmm. it than both those movies. So, mm-hmm. um, I, you know, in, in a way, they're keeping really quiet, it seems like, the, the mm-hmm. campaign. That's why I say I think they're working the back end, you know? Right. Because right. if you're a front, if you're the front runner, then you're just going to get knocked out. Oh yeah, and it's it's got to walk a very delicate line. It's got to appeal to voters. It's got to do the extremely loud, incredibly close thing. You know, it's got to appeal to voters without being a target for all these like douchebags online to start going. Oh, it's such a bad movie. You know. So, it already ran into that a little bit when it first came out, when people questioning its authenticity and blah, blah, blah. So it's laying low in the weeds, quietly making a bajillion dollars and winning the enthusiasm of people who actually pay money to see movies. Right. And I think that's going to, that that could reap dividends. It's way too early to make that call, but I still think that it's got a much better chance than a lot of the movies that are perceived as, as locks right now. I agree. We'll see how it goes. Um, Nobody who saw The Butler is going to go running out of the theater because it was too violent. <laughs> you know? And that's what we're hearing about. I'm saying that because that's what we're hearing about, you know, 12 Years a Slave. Right. Uh, There's people who are not showing up for the screenings. or It's depressing to know that they're having trouble filling seats at the Academy screenings for 12 Years a Slave because people were just gotten around this too difficult. Oh. It's a hard movie to watch, and, and the people are wary of that. Some, especially, I think, a lot of the older members. Those awful Academy members. No, it's terrible. But, you know, the thing Did about have- that... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. No, you go ahead. I did, um, go, please. Oh, no, I, I don't even know what I was going to say. <laughs> no. Were you asking a question a minute ago about what are some of the movies that we haven't mentioned that, that were overlooked that year? Or I was, who, but can who, I just make yeah. my standard um, mm. my standard observation about women in film? Because I always mm-hmm. do that every year. So this year you had a lot of female-driven projects like Evita, for instance, or um, that Jane Campion movie. Uh, Twister did pretty well. It, you know, it had a, f- a strong female lead in it. But it's interesting how marginalized the films by and about women that weren't like Twister or First Wives Club uh, did that year in '96. You know, you did with audiences. You mean with audiences and with the Academy? You know, mm-hmm. Portrait yeah. of a Lady and and. Um, the Crucible, like there were these movies that were built around stars like Winona Ryder, like Nicole Kidman for Portrait of a Lady. They were these big projects mounted that just didn't quite hit with critics or with the Academy. And, it's, and that's why I'm just saying we're starting to see the ongoing diminishment of, of the powerful women at the box. Marvin's Room with Diane Keaton and Meryl Streep together in the same movie. Amazing movie, really, but it's barely... Who, who remembers that movie now? Because it just got overlooked. 
And you go. I like that movie a lot. Man, but you know, there were a lot of great movies with a lot of great roles for women. We talked about Secrets and Lies Already and Breaking the Waves, which um, I guess we're not going to get around to having to be able to talk about it very much. But I really, really, really like Breaking the Waves a lot. It's not an Oscar movie at all, you know, but I can understand why it it was overlooked. But um, one of the great movies of 1996 for sure. Of all time, really. it's, it's so hard for me to watch. It's me so, um, it's it's just a, it's it's a rough movie for me. Mm-hmm. It's it's movie it's great. I feel like I'm being crucified when I watch it. Like literally, <laughs> into my it's rough. It is really rough. It's like it's. Um, but as as I said on the site, and I I want to make note of the fact that this is this is the year after Dogman '95 movement started, mm-hmm. and this is a Dogman '95 movie, which was that they made a manifesto of. Um, didn't really make a big splash over here, but uh, where was it? He, he departed from the manifesto in a lot of ways, more on this one than he did on some of his later films, but it's definitely an attempt to, sort of what I was talking about before with Mike Lee in, in terms of stripping away the artifice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's what the movement was trying to do. Um, some of those Dogma 95 movies are really hard to sit through, though. But it was also the year that a lot of really prominent directors had their first movies. Paul Thomas Anderson had Hard Eight. And you had uh, this movie, you know, Lars von Trier was the very beginning of his career. Um, a couple of other ones were just were just setting out. Danny Boyle. Danny Boyle, Train Spotting. Yeah, yeah, he'd already yeah. made Shallow Grave, but Train Spotting he really broke through. And then and then yeah. Boz Lerman had made um, Romeo and Juliet ball, Ballroom, but then this year he made Romeo yeah. plus Juliet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The Wachowskis had uh, Bound. Mm. Oh yeah, right. Bound. Bound. That's great. another great movie. That that's that's about sexy. That mm. movie was sexy. That's a great movie. Really. Knockout. That movie's a knockout. I love that movie so much. Yeah, they were really they're great filmmakers. Um, Lone Star. Well, was Lerman was really Romeo, and Ju- Romeo and Juliet wasn't Baz Luhrmann's first movie, but that was his first one to hit huge in this country, wasn't it? Yeah, mm, he did so. Strictly Ballroom sure. first. Strictly Ballroom was his first one, and then that. It's the same with, um, right. you know, uh, yeah, he had that was his second movie, but it was just Danny Boyle. Same thing. He made Shallow Grave, which was a kind of a cult hit. Then he made Train Spotting, which kind of launched his really launched his career. Well, I just want to say, I mean, not to talk about it, and it wasn't a figure in the awards at all that year. Uh, and it won, uh, it was nominated for something at the Venice Film Festival, I think. But um, a movie called Basquiat, about the artist, um, and it was directed by Julian Schnabel, who's an artist himself. It's a one off thing. I don't think he's ever directed another movie since then, as far as I can remember. I mean, Bone the Butterfly. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my God. <laughs> he certainly did. Yeah, so, but I mean, Before I'll Night Falls. He did Before Night Falls. <laughs> but Basquiat, so never mind. He, he didn't disappear out. after <laughs> all, did he? <laughs> he wasn't a one-hit wonder. <laughs> he wasn't a one-hit wonder. But, I mean, Basquiat, definitely, if you haven't seen that movie, um, who's the guy? Jeffrey Wright. Um, plays right, Basquiat, right. and he's amazing. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, David Bowie plays Andy Warhol. Yes. Oh, yeah. So that's in a fantastic movie. If you haven't seen, it's one of those little-known movies that that I can recommend. That I think that I, you you know I can highly recommend. This was also the year that they did the first Paradise Lost movie. Isn't that weird? And they're they're like still going over that story. But this was the first year that they they did the first one. And wow, really? Yeah. Paradise Lost, there it is. It's uh, the Child Murders at Robin Hills documentary, uh-huh. the first one. And Schizopolis, lest we forget. Schizopolis, one of the best um, writer's block movies ever made. <laughs> Didn't he make two movies that year? Or no, am I misremembering? I thought he did. 
I don't think so. Robert Altman did a movie this year, a really small movie that hardly I've never seen it. I can't I can't track it down. I can't find it. Um, it's uh, it's called Kansas uh, City. Yeah, Kansas City, and Harry Belafonte plays like a, a gangster type mobster kind of guy in it, and I believe he won the New York Film Critics uh, Award for that. And the same Jennifer Jason Lee mode, she was in that as well. Mm -hmm, yeah, and that year Robert Altman um, had a stroke. He, in the middle of making that movie, I think, he had a stroke at home, and he, he called out to his wife upstairs, just, I need some help down here. He didn't call out her name because he couldn't remember her name. He just knew that he was in trouble, and he didn't know where he was. He didn't know who was in the house, but he called out to somebody. He needed some help. He had a really serious stroke, and, and after that, he, you know. But they kept that a secret, you know. He had a, he had a heart not a heart transplant, but I mean maybe a heart bypass surgery or something, went into Cedars-Sinai. They kept it all a secret. Army Archer, one of the gossip columnists, thought he found out about it and reported it in The Hollywood Reporter, and they phoned him up and scolded him and told him it was wrong, that he would been misinformed, and so he retracted the story. But it was true. Altman just didn't want anybody to know that he was that sick because wow. he didn't think he'd ever be able to make a movie again. They wouldn't insure him, you know. Well, right. And a couple so, a couple of other movies I want to mention here is, um, speaking of women, to get to Jillian on her 37th birthday was David E. Kelly's uh, love letter to his wife, Michelle Pfeiffer, which did not do very well. And it was also the year of The Truth About Cats and Dogs, which Michael hates. But I have to say, as a woman and had been a young woman, that is a movie to really seek out and see if you haven't seen it with Uma Thurman and Janine Garofalo. It's one of my favorite <laughs> movies uh, starring the two of them, and it's all about beauty inner beauty and outer beauty and the differences between them. It's, it's a really wonderful film. I love it. And finally, this is sadly the year of Up Close and Personal, that awful, awful movie with Robert Redford and Michelle Pfeiffer that was supposedly written by Joan Didion and John Donne and was completely butchered. And then I think Joan Didion ended up writing a book about how that movie was butchered. Weren't you telling me that, Ryan? Um, no, it sounds like something I would love, but this is the first I've heard about it. I want to find that book and read it. It sounds exactly like something I would love to tell about, but I didn't know. This is the first I've heard about it. Oh, yeah. So there you go. Up Close and Personal, <laughs> supposedly loosely based on Jessica Savage, the, the uh, news anchor who got herself all coked up one night and went on the air and, and, um, and then ended up getting in a car crash and dying, right? Something like oh, that. Oh, no. Yeah, I, I do remember something like is, that. The movie is so bad, and it's so not that story. <laughs> it's so not that story. One strange thing that happened this year when the, when the awards pageant is that the SAG Ensemble Award went to the Birdcage, right. which didn't didn't make any other splash and any other, um, you know, didn't get any of the nominations at the Oscars or anyplace else. But they really, for once, the SAG Ensemble went to a movie where there was a great ensemble, where those because that's a great group of actors really acting well together with great timing, great great comic timing in that movie. And so they finally, instead of voting for the movie as we agree that they do now, the SAG Ensemble Award goes to the, the movie that SAG thinks is best picture. Yeah. This time they really chose the ensemble. Right, right. They could have given it to uh, Secrets and Lies, but... Um... Mm, to The English Patient or to any of the other major movies. Yeah. A couple of other movies this year, Flirting with Disaster, David O. Russell, oh. not his first film, but yes. his first his first really successful film. I think Spanking the Monkey lit up the art houses, but Flirting with Disaster is one that got everybody's attention. Absolutely. And uh, Wes Anderson with Battle Rocket. Yep, those are the two other up-and-comers. So it's so weird how 96 wasn't the greatest year for film, but it certainly launched some of the greatest American directors of our time. Mm -hmm. so you've got names that will be with us then for the next two or three decades. 
That's, two decades. And that David O. Russell movie is still my favorite of his, that Flirting with Disaster. That's a really funny movie. I think I would have to agree with you on that. Yeah, that is with um, Patricia Arquette and Ben Stiller and and Lily Tomlin and Alan Alda and uh, Mary Tyler Moore. I mean, they're just—it's a great cast. They're all so funny in it. And he knows, you know, he hasn't tried to start, you know, winning Oscars yet. So it's—it's it's not all melodramatic. It's just funny. I haven't. I, I, I've seen. I've seen part of it. I've seen part of Floating with Disaster. And I need to watch the whole thing because I know that you guys are, are really like it a lot. So I'm looking forward to to finishing it. I've tried to mention a couple times Lone Star by John Sayles. I like that movie so much. It's probably it would have been it would have been one of my best picture nominees if I'd oh, had a ballot. Yeah, sure. I really like it so much. And I think Meryl Streep said it was her favorite movie that year. I'm glad that you mentioned that. I was going to bring it up. John Sayles is a guy who's been sort of a cornerstone of independent cinema for decades now. And, and Lone Star was one of the two times that he sort of had a brush with with um, Oscar. He got nominated for a screenplay for Passion Fish, and then he got nominated for a screenplay for Lone Star. And it, I hadn't seen it probably for... 15 years easy and it just holds up really really well at first i thought it wasn't going to because it's it's low budget it's rough around the edges um but it the writing is just so great and it's so multi-layered and multi-textured and it's just multi-layered uh, for sure isn't it yeah. because you know when i first saw it i just took it at face value but then when you see it in retrospect, and you look back at what was happening in the 1990s, how how it, how it comments on political situation and everything, and politics and society, it's really deep. It's just really, you can just peel back the layers like an onion. Mm. Michael was talking about uh, badly executed um, flashbacks, and this is a movie that handles flashbacks and parallel stories brilliantly. Yeah. He's um he's never stopped working, John Sales. He's even got a movie coming out this year called Go for Sisters, which he wrote and directed. Uh, never heard of it. Have no idea, but it's written and directed by John Sales. Stars Edward James Olmos. Um, two childhood friends cross paths years later under undesirable circumstances. That's coming out. I wish I knew more about it. I wish I'd heard a single thing about it. I haven't. That's par for the course with him because he his movies don't cost anything, and he they're self promoted for the most part they're self-distributed um because and in fact lone star i think was was distributed by columbia which at the time for him was huge but for the most part you know he's a little tiny independent guy and not every movie is brilliant you know there some are better than others but you know there's it goes back to what i was saying last week about how there's great movies out there if you just scratch below the surface a little bit and Lone Star is definitely one of them. Matthew McConaughey, I remember, made a splash in A Time to Kill, which was actually the John Grisham movie that actually did make a, a splash in the box office in the same year, but he had a tiny, tiny part as uh, Chris Cooper's father, of all things, because mm. he's obviously in the flashback. But um, mm. the first time I remembered seeing him and also seeing Chris Cooper. Wow. Well, he made Return of the Sakaka 7, which everybody said the big chill ripped off. Yep. And that was a big deal. And he made Mate One, which was really highly praised and sort of a big deal. Um, he made Eight Men Out with John Cusack, which was, you know, these are all really, really quality, really brilliant films for which he did not get any attention that he, I don't think that he deserved. He made um, Passion Fish, which I love. The Secret of Ronin Ish. Oh my God, is that. That's a beautiful movie. That is an incredible film. 
And then lately, you know, I guess I haven't seen his movies. I haven't been keeping up with his career. They've been infrequent and poorly, poorly marketed. Not yeah, hard. I mean, zero marketing. I mean, you never hear about them unless you just happen to be, you know, keep up with his work and you check in. If you follow him, you have to seek him out. Um, Lone Star won the Spirit Award for Best Feature that year. Oh wow! Well, can we say that he's of the Robert Altman school, even though he came out in the seventies? Mm-hmm. So maybe he's a contemporary of Altman's. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of similarity between their their method, I think. Yeah. The ensemble cast. Mm-hmm. He's a little. He's a little more. Um, I don't want to say polished, but he's a little more fluid, I think, in terms of his his storytelling. Robert Altman does this amazing thing where stories sort of spring forward just from snatches of people's conversations. I don't know how exactly he does that, but it's an amazing thing, whereas sales is much more writer-oriented. Exactly. His screenplays are a lot tighter. He got a, a Writer's Guild nomination for Lone Star. Right. Wow. So it wasn't overlooked. The movie wasn't overlooked, but it didn't make a splash at the Oscars at all. If I had been blogging then, dude would have been nominated. Mm, I know, really. But I don't see him getting anywhere near the Oscars now, but not that that matters. We've said repeatedly that it is no measure of quality if you get in the Oscar race or you don't. It's more of a matter of buzz and marketing and, and a game people play. It's, it doesn't when I was a kid and I didn't know about movies, but I, know I wanted, knew I wanted to learn more about movies I'd never seen before, the first thing I did was go get an Oscar book to see what movies had won Oscars. But that's a really poor way to go about learning your film history, well, just, just go yeah. by the Oscars. I mean, you know, it's a good starting year. place, but, I mean, you really have to branch out way beyond the, what, what gets Oscar nominated. Oh, for sure. I mean, it's getting a little bit in a way better because they have more than five nominees now mm-hmm. so you there's a better chance that better films will get recognized um, but uh, yeah for the most part throughout history 96 is a really good example of that look at all the wonderful films that you find if you just start picking up rocks and looking underneath them. <laughs> not that we're unhappy with the English patient no. I mean we agree that it's a fine movie I, I'm, I'm not I wish that they had spread the wealth a little bit more and they had they had it won all nine Oscars that they had given to some more of these great movies that we've talked about but you can understand why it did this is one of those re, one of those years when you can't really disagree with the Academy too much you can understand what they were thinking well think about it they movies like this and Titanic and the English patient I mean and um, Shakespeare in Love it's like what do they all have in common well they have appeal to men and women they make men and women passionately love what they're watching on screen there's sex for the men and there's romance for the women and there's enough like artsy cred for them to feel mm-hmm. respectable while voting. and they're smart, they're generally smart and they're classy they tick all the boxes with all the all the guilds, all the categories. Every every branch of the academy can yes. see something in the movie that they can respect because right, it's something tech, that tech their tech. peers have done. Yeah, and they have all the texts covered. They have cinematography, yeah. mm-hmm. art direction, sound, and it, you know they're the same. They all have the same ingredients. But really, I think that the key to their sweeping success, their winning many Oscars, is appealing to both men and women. And, and there aren't a lot of women in the academy, but there are enough to push it over to a to a sweep type scenario when you have that like that's Slumdog Millionaires that movie you know if you can mm-hmm. also get the woman vote you can really go for a sweep and get a sweep of the awards 
So what movie is that this year? Do we know yet? Well, I mean, it seems like it's, it's almost know, like last this. year and the year before where they were kind of split up. You didn't have a sweep year. Like Argo, Argo, you know, whatever it was, it wasn't necessarily a movie that was going to unite men and women behind a cloud of love. You know, it's not that movie. Yeah. But um, so I don't know if, if this year we're not we're probably not going to have another sweep unless Twelve Years a Slave could just win everything. It could just start. It might be it. unstoppable, you know. It just seems like it seems so inevitable, and it's going to be almost. It seems like it would be so embarrassing if it doesn't win everything, doesn't it? Yeah, it kind of seems like it's such an achievement, and it's so long coming for a black director to win that this year of all years, where they made such a big deal about diversity, that that you know. I can't see any other movie beating it at the moment. I mean, it's going to have to be a really, really great movie. I don't buy the, the gravity thing at all. Mm-mm. We just have to wait and see about American Hustle, though. That's the, that's the movie that's kind of still lurking in the stealth. about him because David O. Russell doesn't make those kind of movies that the Oscar voters will vote for. You know, So why are people putting down their chips on a movie that is such an iffy chance that it's going to it's going to do what right. you know what i mean like what it's going to finally be the, it's about these dark gangster characters you know in a year where you have all these heroic characters and voters always go for heroic characters you're right you're right Why i don't mean, i mean I, I like to keep i don't want to forget it because I, but so maybe, maybe i'm just mentioning it because i think that if we don't f- talk about it at all then it could sneak in you know i don't want it to be one of those situations where it just comes out of nowhere right it just doesn't um, make sense to me right now that in this mm -hmm. year they would go for something that that is downbeat because it's going to be for one thing it looks stylistically so much like wolf of wall street except it's it's not scorsese right and so you you can't compete with wolf of wall street if you're doing the same type of movie how are you going to feel more sympathy for that character in that movie than the character in 12 Years a Slave or even in The Butler or mm-hmm. even Sandra Bullock in Gravity. Like, how are you going to get anybody to care about these, these characters? I mean, it's going to be a great movie and everything. I'm just, I'm just saying I would, and probably a Best Picture nominee, but my God, really, to predict it to win? Based on right. what, you know? Right. So. He appeals to a certain generation, and th- I think his movies are, are that generation's idea of what movies should win Oscars, and that's why he keeps getting thrown into the conversation. That's part right. of it. Maybe so, I, I guess. But Not initially generation, but but I'm getting back to the bloggy bubble again. Right, the bloggy bubble. Yeah, this this fictional thing that I've created in my head where movies are awesome inside of this bubble, and people can't see outside of it. <laughs> And that, you know, that's fine and all. It's just that they have to at some point start looking at reality of the situation, which is that, you know, I I, I know I'm one to talk. Obviously, I, I thought Lincoln was, was the movie to beat last year. Was you were right. They just picked the wrong movie. <laughs> and people, a lot of people think Lincoln was boring. Michael's one of them, you know. So you can't. It's it's hard to get, and I was totally in the Oscar bubble for that, full on. You couldn't you couldn't see beyond your enthusiasm for the movie. I couldn't, and I should have because almost everybody I talk to that's outside the bubble always says the same thing: Lincoln's boring, and Argo was entertaining. I guess I looked at the box office on Lincoln and I thought, well, the experts are incorrect. People obviously are liking this movie because they're seeing it and they're telling their friends to see it. Telling their friends to see it, too. A lot of movies can make $100 million, but if you right, make close this- to $200 million, then you're, te- then you're telling your friends. Then you're te- you don't tell your friends to go see a movie that's boring. Because or even if you would- only make 100 if you make it over the course of months because people yeah. aren't yeah. going to see it. And, and that's, that's what that movie did. I was going did. on the, the importance yeah. of it all. Like, Out of Africa, I know you loved it, Ryan, but to me that's... Mm-hmm. 
pretty boring movie, and it still won. I just thought that the high achievement of it might have driven it over, over just mm-hmm. entertaining. You know, like I think right. I think of the Oscars that they should strive more for rewarding excellence. Excellence, not just oh that was a really good movie, but excellence. You know, like above and beyond. It happens once in a while, you know. And it, can, and it happens sometimes just the way that the cards are dealt that year. The movie, it's not a, it's not just a movie that's isolated by itself, but it's what other movies that's you're up against yeah, that year. And well, just like uh, yeah. um, the English Patient in '96 didn't have a whole lot of competition. I don't think the Out of Africa really had a whole lot of competition that I can think of offhand either. I've said this before, anytime there's a democratic process with something, there's a tendency to sort of slouch towards the middle, where you reward things that are the least offensive rather than right. the best. Right. Because right. for every person that thinks something's the best, there's always some asshole who thinks it's the worst. Because it's a movie, generally, that's putting itself out there, and it's trying to challenge. And that's probably going to be the problem again with 12 Years a Slave. It's probably going to be up against something that is wildly entertaining that people just like. And then it'll be like this dynamic again of rewarding excellence versus rewarding kitten in a teacup. Facebook like, like. It's got to get nominated, though, doesn't it? I'm looking at Metacritic, and you've probably both already been over this a million times because you're actually in the game, and I haven't been paying attention, but I was surprised to see on Metacritic that it has 24 solid 100s. Oh, yeah, no, and it's totally, it was beating Gravity for a while there as the highest-reviewed film of the year, but now they're tied, I think, with 96, both of them, which is unusual. If you go back the last few years, you won't find any, well, Zero Dark Thirty was one, but most movies don't get up that high anywhere near the 90s nowadays. Because it's so easy with just a couple of, it only takes two or three reviews below 50 to pull all of those hundreds to wipe those out and to drop, make it drop below 90. You know, that's the unfair thing yeah. about the way those averages are calculated. I know it's math. I understand the mathematics of it. But it's, it's, I just don't think it's right that a critic should be able to give a movie a 20 or a 10, a score of 10. It's yeah. ridiculous and to me that a movie could get a, a score that low. You can't, you can't sit anybody down in front of it. Like, that's the key to an Oscar movie is you have to be able to sit anybody down in front of it, and they're not going to get bored. They're not going to be freaked out. They're not, they're not going to miss what it's all about. They're going to get it. It's going to be appealing to all age groups and walks of life and ethnic backgrounds. It's just going to, you know, it's a generic movie that's plug and play. I don't know if 12 Years a Slave is that movie. Uh, we'll have to see, but all I can hope is that they will think a little bit bigger. Sasha. What? Um, so far, what films do you think are going to get nominated so far? Uh, best Picture, we're talking yeah, about? for Best so Picture. 12 Years a Slave, Gravity, um, Inside Lewin Davis, Captain Phillips, Nebraska, The Butler, and then it's a little bit of a gray area. I think All is Lost will probably sneak in there. Um and then we'll see after that. Then there's slots open that are of movies that have have yet to be seen. How many did you name there? I wasn't keeping track. Did you mention Blue Jasmine? Uh-uh. I don't know about Blue Jasmine. We'll have to see about that. I have it on my contender tracker um, as one of the big movies, but I just don't know what's gonna, how this whole Woody thing is going to play out. Right. You know, speaking of gravity, you know, I saw the movie and I liked it. I loved it. But do you think that a film that has pretty much two main characters and that's pretty much it, could win Best Picture? Because I don't it does. No, but other people do. I don't think it's. Um, I don't think it has a chance to win. 
I don't either. Yeah, yeah I don't I mean, it's, it's, it, it, it gets a lot of really high reviews, but it's being judged on its own terms, which is a really simple, straightforward suspense story with a few wrinkles to it. And it's great at that. It's a, it's it's in its own way, it's a perfect film. But to me, just because it's perfect doesn't mean that it's great. And it, it's a movie that I enjoyed the hell out of, but it hasn't resonated with me. You know? That can account for also how many the scores of a hundred hundred right. so many so many scores of a hundred because you can't find any anything that's wrong with it right but at the same time you can't find anything wrong with um you know a peanut butter sandwich either but it's still a peanut butter sandwich a lot of people love it but as you say michael actors rule the academy there are 1200 actors in the actors branch in the academy and all the other branches are like 300 400 actors rule so michael i was asking him um remember michael about how many movies have ever won Best Picture uh, that that starred only one person or two people? And right. I can't think of any. There's none. So that's that, that that's pretty. I mean, not saying that it can't happen. And, I mean, we see history made all the time. I'm just saying what can. My question is always what can beat Twelve Years a Slave, and I don't think Gravity can. You know, Gravity kind of reminds me of 2001: A Space Odyssey when that came out. It was awe-inspiring. It was this epic film, and it got a lot of attention. But when it came to Oscars, it didn't even get a Best Picture nod. Yeah, it did. No, it didn't. Mm-hmm. They got it got Best Director. I think. It got Best Director, mm-hmm. not Are you Best sure? Picture. I'm not sure. I can't remember Why am I exactly. Even but I know Michael, best director. He knows everything about everything. I can't believe I'm challenging him. Sorry. Okay. I just want to say real quick. I didn't mean to compare Gravity to a peanut butter sandwich because I really liked Gravity a lot, a lot. So it's <laughs> I like much peanut better. butter sandwiches. I like peanut butter sandwiches, but Gravity's even better than I'm a peanut butter sandwich. I'm never going to let you live that one down. Never ever. <laughs> What? I'm never going to let you live that down. <laughs> <laughs> I say these things, and I think that people are going to just like roll their eyes when they hear me say that. I they, can't believe slimy, I but I knew exactly that. what you meant, and I think you were right. You've been listening to episode 49 of Oscar Podcast with Craig Kennedy from LivingInCinema.com, Sasha Stone and Ryan Adams from AwardsDaily.com, and special guest Michael Gray. We will be back next week with another episode, and you can follow us on Twitter at Oscar Podcast, 